Every word comes through his hand. Let's pray as we come to God's word on this first Sunday of 2021. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. We ask now that you teach us, you shape us, you correct us, you lead us. So give us eyes to see Christ on every page of your holy book. Give us ears to hear your voice. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Genesis in chapter 6. We have among, in the opening verses of chapter 6, amongst the most debated verses of Genesis, and various words and phrases, and almost every verse have multiple interpretations. But this is God's word. Genesis 6, 1-8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And this is a passage that is complicated, confusing, debated, and at the same time, unbelievably straightforward. These verses are quite confusing. So put it another way, you could say that there is a lot to argue among the trees. And good people do not agree on everything as you look at the individual trees. But if you step back and see the forest, it looks amazingly clear. And the point can be brought home simply and powerfully. I don't know whether you've ever seen images online and they're so enlarged, so zoomed in a detail that you cannot tell what it is. You know those, you, know, you, you, you if somebody took, took a picture of a, of, of a chair leg or something, you would have no idea, you know, in that, in that detail what it was. You, um, maybe, for example, like a striped candy cane, you know, the things that you hang on Christmas trees. And I think of that because we found a sticky one when we tried to put this. We tried to put the tree up, but if you took a picture just of the, you know, of, of the candy cane, you'd see red and white stripes. But then, if you showed a you know a more usual view, you'd see that it was a striped candy cane. So when you're close in, sometimes it's hard to see what you are looking at. So we're going to do a close walk through the trees of these verses. But we're doing that so in the end we can step out of the trees and see the forest. So the larger, more significant point can be brought home with greater force. Um, I'm excited to be back in Genesis, already enjoyed it before December. 
so we don't miss out any passages when we go through scriptures. But keep your Bible open as we can try to understand what is going on in a number of these difficult places along the way. First of all, where are we? Well, we're in the toldoth of Adam. We're looking at Adam's generation. And if you remember, we're still back in chapter 5, verse 1, that this is the book of the generations of Adam. And as I said right at the beginning, Genesis is divided into ten toldoths, the Hebrew word for generation. So the book of Genesis is divided into ten generations, and we're in the toldoth, the generation of Adam. And if you remember what we looked at in chapter 5, that there is long life, there are offspring, there is blessing, there is multiplication. But at the same time, death, there is the curse of death. And the constant refrain, if you remember, is Adam lived and he died. Seth lived and he died. Enosh lived and he died. Without exception, except for Enoch. Now keep this in mind that we're in the told off of Adam's line through Seth. And in chapter 4, we had this genealogy of Adam's line through Cain. Remember, the line of Cain. And in chapter 5, we had the line of Adam through Seth which is the promised line, which has blessing, but also has death. If you remember, the, the hallmark, if you like, of the line of Cain was the, you know, was the scientific, the common grace, the scientific and art development for which we give thanks for. But the, the thing of the line of Seth is worship. It's the worship of God. The promised line has blessing, but also has death. It's going to be important in a minute, you see why, because it affects how we might interpret various points in this passage. But just remember we're in the toldoth of Adam's line through Seth. That's where we are. So look at verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So we see from the beginning that we're in a situation of blessing and at least some general obedience. Why? Because man is re reproducing, multiplying on the face of the land, which is what God said in Genesis 1, that as image bearers you are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so some of that is going on. Interestingly, what is noted is that daughters were born to them. It is not that we have not heard of daughters before, but generally we've seen the father and the son. But the daughters are mentioned because we're going to pick up immediately in verse 2 with the daughters of man who have been married off to these sons of God. So we're in a situation of multiplication. And you might think that good is happening on the earth. But very quickly we're going to see that that is not what mark marks out humanity in general. And that has a, you know, I'm thinking of this of our day in which we live what marks humanity in general. In verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took their wives any they chose. How are we, how are we to understand the sons of God? If you read the commentaries like I did, I have quite a few that I'm looking at in whole or in part working through Genesis. But you can see that there's a number of different interpretations already. There are three main ways of interpreting the sons of God here in verse 2. 
One is to see them as from a line of kings. And it's true that sometimes in the Old Testament, a ruler, a judge, a magistrate, a king is called a son of God. Or in Psalm 82, they're called Elohim, gods with a little lowercase g or a lowercase e in that case. So it's not unfamiliar language to talk about a king this way. And yet there is no place in the Old Testament where, as a class of people, kings are called in the plural sons of God. So that might be a bit strange. More importantly, it is hard to see how kings fit into the context. We haven't been talking about kings. In fact, one of the distinctions you may remember between the genealogy in Genesis and those, say, from the Sumerians is that theirs followed the line of kings and here we're following simply the line of the ancient patriarchs. So it would be a bit unusual to introduce kings in chapter 6. But that's the first interpretation people say. The second, and you're smart, you're thinking that number 3 will be the right one. Well, I'm going to make that case, but here is number two. And a lot of good, smart people are convinced that two is right, and that is to see the sons of God as angels, some kind of supernatural beings. And it seems you have this language in Job 1 verse 6 and Job 2 verse 1, the sons of God as angels. And we know from other parts of Scripture that angels can take human form, can be confused to humans. In Genesis 18, the angels come and visit Abraham and Sarai. Or Hebrew says that you have visited with angels unaware. So it's not unheard of there may be angels among people. And humans do not recognise that they are angels. Many of the earliest interpreters understood this to be a reference to angels. Many of the church fathers and the Jewish teachers of the time understood it this way. Although, interestingly, the rabbis in the time of the church pronounced the curse on anyone who took the angel view. If we're talking about angels, then the sin would be transgressing proper boundaries. It's hard to see what the sin would be if we're dealing with kings. Why would it be a sin for kings to marry the daughters of man? Unless they took this as a reference to polygamy. But I don't think that is a reference so it makes sense why this would be a sin for angels to do it. And some people draw this connection between 2 Peter 2 and Jude, where it talks about angels who didn't keep in within their boundaries and were cast into chains. Or you could argue that it's referring to some angelic rebellion in time, before Adam and Eve in the garden. So there are some reasons to think the sons of God could be angels. But there are significant problems with this. Jesus says various times in the Gospels that angels are neither married or given in marriage. And although angels can take human form, like Genesis 18, it's another thing to think of an angel being intimate with a human being. It says they took as wives any that they chose. And angels who are inhabiting earthly spaces for a degree of time that they woo a bride and get permission from the father and have a ceremony and get married, that's stretching it, I think, too far. Which is, but more in, most importantly, why I'm not convinced by the angelic interpretation is we're going to have the flood 
as a punishment for who? Well, not for angels. There's no record of angels being swept up in the flood. No, the flood was a punishment on the sin of man. So if the real real people who committed the crime in in verse 2 are angels, why are human beings punished in verse 3? So if that isn't right, and I don't think it is, there must be a third interpretation. And that is to answer that the sons of God is a reference to the chosen line of Seth. It's not unusual in the Old Testament for God's people to be called Bene Israel or Bene Elohim, sons of God, children of God. It does not have to be a specific reference to any particular individual. As much as it is a way of descending God's chosen people, the sons of God. You could even translate it as godly sons. So I'm convinced that when it says sons of God, it means the sons of Seth, from the line of Seth. Which is why I reminded us where we were. We're in the generation of Adam coming down through Seth. And it would make sense, having just done that in chapter 5, in chapter 6, we're still talking about the line of Seth. And this is important. It's, it's not, this isn't just random theology. This is important because the sin on this reading is that the sons of God, God's chosen line, took any of the wives that they choose. In other words, they didn't just marry among their own people. They're not just marrying among those who share their faith. And in, at the end of chapter 4, People began to call on the name of the Lord when Seth was born. It is the Seth line who are the worshippers of Yahweh. So for the first time we have this formal worship of God and it's not from the line of Cain, it's from the line of Seth. But yet we read here that the sons of God, meaning from the chosen line of Seth, choose for themselves any of their wives. And I think, in fact, we're meant to see a comparison in verse 2 with how the late line of Cain operated in chapter 4. You had two Lamechs. You had the bad Lamech, who was the seventh in line through Cain. And then you had Lamech, the father of Noah. The bad Lamech took two wives. Genesis 4, verse 19. Lamech took two wives, Adah and Zillah. Adah meant ornament, Zilla meant tinkling, as in a sound, one commentator called them a pretty face and a sweet voice. There is nothing wrong with a pretty face and a sweet voice, but it's highlighting what Lamech, who was the first polygamist, was looking for in his wife. He was only looking for a pretty face and a sweet voice. He's just looking at the externals. And in chapter 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So the line of Seth is beginning to act like the line of Cain and is living by sight, not by faith. It's living by sight, not by faith. So the sin here is at the chosen line, which was meant to be worshipping God, is acting like the accursed line, the line of Cain. And the line from Seth is intermarrying with the line from Cain, looking at the attractive women and picking whichever one they wanted. And that is why God is angry. 
not just with the line of Cain, but now with all people. Then we come to verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. One, is to, one way of looking at this is to see this as a punishment on the lifespan of humans. Because you've sinned like this, you no longer live for 900 years, but now it's only going to live for 120. That's somewhat plausible. Moses, the last man to die in the Pentateuch, was 120. But yet when we get to Genesis 11, the genealogy of Shem, we see that the lives aren't limited to 120. Shem is 600, um, someone else is 438, Salah is 433, Eber is 464. So it's to, difficult to reconcile God is limiting years to 120 when the people after the flood live longer. So there must be a second way of interpreting it, and this is to see this is a warning of the judgment to come. God says, I will give you three generations, three times 40. 120 years of warning of patience and then I will wipe out the earth. My spirit shall not abide in man forever, verse 3. The language of warning as if God is saying I'm not going to live with you sinful people forever. All around us we see people flying in the sight of in the face of God with no fear of God whatsoever. With no fear of God whatsoever. And this has the language of warning, as if God is saying, I'm not going to tolerate this forever. It's like Jonah going to Nineveh and saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It's a warning of the judgment to come. 1 Peter 3 verse 20 says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He waited patiently. 120 years and then the judgment is coming. Don't you think when you look at the world that judgment is coming? It is. It has to be. You can't fly in the face of what God has done and God to sit back. It should sober us and make us urgent about the message of the gospel. So that brings us, we're working through these verses to verse 4, the Nephilim. Verse 4, the Nephilim. Were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are the Nephilim? We do not know what it means. I certainly don't. It comes from the Hebrew word nepel, which means to fall. Many commentators then therefore feel say that the Nephilim is a reference to fallen ones, a clan or a race or a group of fallen something or other. It's important to notice that the Nephilim are not the same as the sons of God in verse 2, nor are the Nephilim the offspring that were born to the sons of God and the daughters of man. We know that the Nephilim are not the sons of God and not their offspring because it says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. In other words, it's a chronological marker. And though we don't know anything about them, it must have been well known in Moses' day so that they could write and say, this took place in the days of the Nephilim, and everyone would say, oh right, do you know what I mean? It's a bit like we would say that that took place in the days of Queen Victoria or um, you know, 
when Winston Churchill was Prime Minister, it's a way of marking time. And everyone knows, right, the Nephilim are the same as the mighty men at the end of the verse. So this time, this was happening with the sons of God and daughters of man in verse 2, is also the time of the Nephilim. It's a chronological marker. And these were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. So the Nephilim were mighty men, a group of famous or infamous warriors, chieftains, warring tribes, people who were well known. There's one other verse in the Bible that references the Nephilim, which is in Numbers 13, verse 33. When the spies go back to Canaan and they come back and ten of them give a bad report, they are exaggerating because they are scared and they do not want Israel to take the land as God told them to. Now, that doesn't mean that in numbers they saw the descendants of the Nephilim because everyone was wiped out in the flood except for Noah's household. But what it meant in numbers is they saw people who were like the great men of old, the giants of old. We were like grasshoppers to them. They were mighty men, mighty warriors. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible translates back in Genesis the Nephilim with the word Gigantic, which is why some translations refer to the Nephilim as giants. Now, when you hear that, don't think of men as tall as skyscrapers, Jack and the Beanstalk, or the Jolly Green Giant, or whoever, or nasty giants marching through the land, because Goliath is called a giant, and he was just nine feet tall. He was massive, but not something like out of science fiction. So the giants of groups of people that were larger than normal, strong, tall, mighty, full of exploits. So that's the, the, the Nephilim. And Genesis 6 is marking out this scene with the sons of God, the sons of the line of Seth, and the daughters of man took place in that day, in that age of the Nephilim, like the giants of old, these mighty warriors. Now one more tree to deal with before we step back and look at the forest. And that's in the second paragraph. Notice what it says about God. It is very striking. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, for I am sorry that I have made them. What do we do with this language? God regretting, grieving, being pained in his heart? How does this square with the other depictions of God in the Bible? And what our theology informs us about God, about God's character. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is infinite in being and perfection. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. God is immutable. That means he cannot change. Malachi 3 verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. He is without parts, so he is not a composite of body parts. He's not a composite of attributes. He's without passions. And passions is something that happens to you and renders you passive. Passions are what sweep over you, that you have no control over. The theological language is that affections are emotion of the will. God has affections, he has inclinations, he has motions towards good. 
away from evil. But he doesn't have passions. He is never rendered passive. Things do not happen to God. So how do we understand this striking language? Well, I think we can recognise in just reading our Bible that there are a number, and I would say the word, of anthropomorphisms. I, will, I actually spelt that out very carefully, which means that there are a number of times in the Bible where certain human descriptions, body parts, are ascribed to God. And we understand instinctively that God is invisible, but it's a way that we understand. So any time we speak of God, we cannot speak exhaustively or perfectly, even though we can speak truly of God. And that is to say our language is analogical. It says true things about God, but God is always other. God is always beyond us. God is always transcendent. Think about the times in the Bible where God is described as having body parts. The Bible is described that God has a face, eyes, eyelids, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, lips, neck, arm, hand, finger, heart, intestines, bosom and feet. At some time in the Bible they are attributed to God. But we know God does not have eyes, arm, finger, intestines and feet. That's a way of us understanding how God is like. Anthropomorphism is describing God with human language and body. Anthropopathism is describing God as having human-like emotions or pathos. And we see this in scripture, that God remembers, God forgets, God rests, God sits, God stands, God grieves, God regrets. And again, we instinctively read that and we understand God does not remember things like we remember. God doesn't forget as though he's absent from his mind and he needs to look it up. God doesn't need to search things like we do when we search Google because God has forgotten. And in the same way, God does not grieve or regret or repent in the way that we should and do. 1 Samuel 15, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It is not the same way that a human being would be grieved or sorry. It's important for me to say that because we must let all of Scripture and the best of our theological traditions help us inform us when we come to passages like this. But these verses mean something. The Bible is using provocative language to describe God's horror, God's sadness, God's disappointment, God's anger over sin. Genesis 5 verse 29 says, And called his name Noah, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And if I can put that with anthro pathetic language, just as Lamech is saying that we experience the pain of this fallen world, there is a sense that God is pained by the sin of this fallen world. There is a sense that we could describe that, that God is pained by the sin of the world. And Moses wants to describe God's horror 
over what has taken place with his image bearers, which allows us to step back from the trees and look at the forest. Because when we look at the forest as a whole, the big idea is really straightforward. And it is this, that even as civilization spreads, even as population increases, even as these men of old are given extraordinarily long lives, even in the midst of all this blessing, the story of mankind is the story of depravity and disobedience. Look at the sons of God again. This is just the latest example of the curse infecting every area of the planet. We're meant to see that the sin of the sons of God has echoes of the first sin in the garden. Genesis 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And here we have the sons of God, not from the line of Cain, but the chosen line who should have known better. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they look at the daughters of man and say, they are attractive, I desire them, and I want them, and whatever God says, I will have them. And it's the sin manifesting itself again and again. They thought they knew better than God. We see it all over today. People think they know better than God. If somebody is born a girl, they think God made a mistake. God does not make a mistake. We do not know better than God. It is the sin of the garden being repeated. They, like Adam and Eve, were living by sight, not by faith. You'd be hard-pressed to describe the sinful state of man in any stronger language than verse 5 does. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. We would have liked God to say, the Lord saw that the civilization and the accomplishments were great on the earth. The Lord saw that the cultural achievements of man was great on the earth. The Lord, saw, the Lord saw that the increase in population of man upon the earth was great. The Lord saw that the scientific advancements were great. That's what we want to be recorded. But of all the things that stood out to God, it wasn't their scientific advancement. It wasn't the development of vaccine. What stood out was the greatness of man's wickedness. That's what stood out to God. When God looked, he saw man's wickedness. And then what followed is a sevenfold description of man's wickedness. Every, no exception, intention, this isn't an accident. What has happened to you isn't an accident or the fault of your parents, it's intentional. Thoughts, this is not merely your deeds, but it comes from within of your hearts, so you cannot say this, this is peripheral to you, this comes from the core of your being, was only, nothing else, evil. We don't call it weakness, we don't call it struggling, we don't call it brokenness, we call it evil. And continually, no letting up. It's a sevenfold description of the wickedness of man, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's a constant bounding drumbeat. Their wickedness was great. It is rotten to the core. 
So the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and bird of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Think of the language I will blot out. Later on it's described to use to describe atonement for our sin, to say sin must be blotted out by divine sacrifice. So here are two questions to ask yourself. Are we that bad? Is God that mad? Now you might say, well, this is about a particular generation on the earth. And it's true. Genesis 6 verse 5 isn't the indictment of every household everywhere on the earth. But yet Psalm 14 verse 3, they've all turned aside. Together they've been corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Left to ourselves, apart from God's redeeming grace, this is the indictment of the human race. Their wickedness is that great? Are we that bad? Is humanity apart from Christ that bad? Are we that bad? Is God that mad? We live in a time where people are perpetually offended. Sometimes for real. I've never seen a day like it where people are offended all the time. Sometimes it's a posture, a performative offensiveness. But everyone is triggered. Everyone is hurt. Everyone is angry. Everyone is offended. Everyone is wounded. But we never consider the most offended being in the universe, God. He made us in his image. He gave us everything. And we sin against him. And the greatest thing about the human race is our wickedness. That is the Bible. Do you believe it? Do you acknowledge that we're that bad and God has a right to be that mad? Because if that is not the case, the flood story will make will never make sense to us. And the cross will never make sense. There's no need for the cross. If this isn't true, there was no need for the flood. But we can't end there. Because there is verse 8. And you know, famously in Ephesians 2, after all the bad news of dead and trespasses and sins and sons of disobedience, there is a verse that says, but God. And here comes the good news. In verse 8 we have, but Noah. And it's not about Noah, it's about God. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So with all the wickedness on the earth, with all the curse infecting God's creation, and you don't have to be blind to see that today. With the sons of God sinning and taking wives of the daughters of men. With the great wickedness only evil all the time. In the midst of this, with God's punishment and 120 years to block them out of the face of the earth, there is hope. Noah found favour. There is the one man with whom God is not angry. There is hope. Brothers and sisters, there is hope. There is the glimmer of grace in the midst of, the hum midst of humanity's rebellion and treason and treachery. And we know that Noah is not perfect because he proves to be quite the sinner himself himself but there is a man to come one with God whom God will be infinitely and always pleased his beloved son and he will find favour and you too can find favour and grace if you belong to the son so the question this morning shouldn't be are we really that bad I don't want you to go away saying are we as bad as James has recounted or is God that mad?
But the question is, have you found favour with God? Have you experienced God's grace? Do you, do you know that you do not have to be among those with whom God is angry? There is a way to escape the flood of God's judgment. There is an ark today that can rescue you. So in the midst of all the evil, in the midst of all that is sinful, in the midst of all that is treacherous, we have here in these eight verses a picture of grace that sin does not have to have the final word at all. I want you to remember that one line from this morning, that sin does not have to have the last word for you. There is grace, there is salvation in the ark, in God's beloved Son. God gave his Son in whom he is well pleased. May the Lord bless the word. And may the Lord bless you this year, that we may live for his glory, the glory of the Son, in his precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing from the front anyway. I know that my...